the Audioboy Project, a decentralized anti-authoritarian-based initiative focused on creating a library of audiobooks for truth-seekers and free-speech advocates. All content on this channel is free to download, share, and repost. Your support is much appreciated. Truth, audiobooks, for the people. Chapter 7 Dr. Fauci, Mr. Hyde, NIAID's Barbaric and Illegal Experiments on Children The Nazi medical experiments are an example of this sadism, for in the use of concentration camp inmates and prisoners of war as human guinea pigs, very little, if any, benefit to science was achieved. It is a tale of horrors of which the German medical profession cannot be proud. Although the experiments were conducted by fewer than 200 murderous quacks, albeit some of them held eminent posts in the medical world, their criminal work was known to thousands of leading physicians of the Reich, not a single one of whom, so far as the record shows, ever uttered the slightest public protest. William L. Shirer, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich Science Advances One Funeral at a Time Max Planck. During the nearly four decades since Dr. Anthony Fauci took the agency's reins, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, has often treated America's most vulnerable children as collateral damage in its director's single-minded pursuit of profitable pharmacological solutions for steadily declining public health. AZT's sketchy and corrupt path to regulatory approval in 1988 blazed a trail for a multi-billion dollar boom in new HIV drugs, and Dr. Fauci gave broad leeway to his pharmaceutical partners and their PIs to conduct unethical human experimentation that exposed both children and adults to toxic compounds. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services HHS, and its predecessor agency, the Public Health Service, already had a long history of morally repugnant experiments on vulnerable subjects, including imprisoned convicts, institutionalized adults with intellectual disabilities, and orphaned children in hellholes like Staten Island's Willowbrook and the Fernald School in Waltham, Massachusetts. In 1973, Dr. Stanley Plotkin penned a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine in which he justified his experiments on vulnerable, intellectually disabled children, saying they are humans in form but not in social potential. Those sorts of prejudices did nothing to damage his lofty reputation among his colleagues. Vaccinologists consider the annual Stanley Plotkin Award the Nobel Prize of Vaccinology. In 2019, the British medical journal called Plotkin the godfather of vaccines. These homegrown American medical mengalas most often targeted impoverished American Indians and blacks in Africa, the Caribbean, and in the United States as their laboratory rats. I am proud that my uncle, Senator Edward Kennedy, played a key role in ending the government's 40-year Tuskegee syphilis experiment, begun in 1932, 
another notorious medical research assault on a vulnerable population when he learned about it in 1972 from a CDC whistleblower. Government regulators and their pharmaceutical industry partners often combined racial discrimination with child abuse in HHS's drug and vaccine development campaigns. During the government industry polio vaccine experiments of the 1950s through 1960s, U.S. vaccinologists like Hilary Koprowski and Stanley Plotkin worked with Belgian colonial authorities in the Congo to recruit millions of black African child volunteers for dozens of mass population trials with experimental vaccines that were perhaps considered to be too risky to test on white children. As late as 1989, the CDC conducted lethal experiments with a hazardous measles vaccine on black children in Cameroon, Haiti, and south-central Los Angeles, killing dozens of little girls before halting the program. CDC did not tell volunteers that they were participating in an experiment. In 2014, another CDC whistleblower, the agency's senior vaccine safety scientist, Dr. William Thompson, disclosed that top CDC officials had forced him and four other senior researchers to lie to the public and destroy data that showed disproportionate vaccine injuries, including a 340% elevated risk for autism in black male infants who received the measles, mumps, rubella, MMR vaccine on schedule. So it was only natural that Dr. Fauci and his pharma partners employed black and Hispanic foster children for cruel and barbaric treatments in their efforts to develop their second-generation antivirals and chimeric HIV vaccines that provided the initial stepping stones for his career. In 1989, Dr. Fauci declined President George H.W. Bush's offer to become NIH director, explaining, I was training for the AIDS epidemic before it even happened. My being involved with it has been my passion and my life's work. Dr. Fauci's philanthropic demurrer might have been disingenuous. By then, his power as NIAID director dwarfed the authority wielded by his nominal boss at NIH. His successful early machinations during the AIDS drug boom had won NIAID a massive discretionary budget and global influence over scientific research and international health policy, including de facto control over its sister HHS agencies, FDA and CDC. The NIAID directorship also offered dizzying publicity opportunities and lucrative partnerships with pharmaceutical companies as NIAID became pharma's chief incubator and collaborator in new drug development and promotion. Biocontainment handling expert and trainer Sean Kaufman, who designed and built mock biosafety level BSL laboratories for NIAID in the mid-2000s, is a longtime admirer of Dr. Fauci and trained hundreds of BSL workers in safety protocols for NIAID. Kaufman told me, everyone knows that Dr. Fauci runs the whole show at HHS. All the other agency heads are figureheads. 
Tony Fauci pulls all the strings. Jonathan Fishbein, M.D., who served as head of the Division of AIDS, D-A-I-D-S, Office of Policy and Clinical Research Operations from 2003 to 2005, told me that Fauci's expanding influence seemed to eclipse that of his boss, NIH Director Dr. Elias Zerhouni. When Zerhouni could have taken the high road and righted the misconduct that I exposed in the Division of AIDS, he chose to stay uninvolved. Fauci is a master at marketing himself and his institute, and leveraged AIDS to generate huge appropriations from Congress to the NIH. Who would ever have stood up to him? Certainly not Zerhouni or his successors. NIAID money is spread throughout the major medical institutions in the United States, and for that reason, he wields enormous influence in the medical community. Dr. Fauci's corrupt collaboration with pharmaceutical companies that yielded NIAID's scandalous approval of AZT in 1987 consolidated his symbiotic relationship with the pharma PIs and lowered NIAID's standards for product approvals. His relationships with his PIs and their pharma patrons yielded a cascade of beneficial personal opportunities, and Dr. Fauci quickly learned to overlook pharma's excesses. The 1980 Bayh-Dole Act allowed NIAID and Dr. Fauci personally to file patents on the hundreds of new drugs that his agency-funded PIs were incubating, and then to license those drugs to pharmaceutical companies and collect royalties on their sales. NIAID's drug development enterprise quickly eclipsed HHS's regulatory function. Millions of dollars began flowing in from drug royalties to NIH and to NIAID's high-level personnel, including Dr. Fauci, further blurring the boundaries between public health and pharma profits. According to an expose by the Associated Press, in all, 916 current and former NIH researchers are receiving royalty payments for drugs and other inventions they developed while working for the government. That investigation concluded that scientists and administrators at the National Institutes of Health flagrantly disregard ethical and legal requirements of financial disclosure. Financial conflicts with pharmaceutical companies quickly became the defining feature of Dr. Fauci's governance style. As early as 1992, a Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General investigation concluded that NIAID failed to police conflicts of interest by his PIs in a vaccine clinical trial. All that new NIH and NIAID money made clinical trials a vast, booming industry. Holocaust survivor Vera Sharav spent her long career investigating abusive human experiments by NIAID and other agencies. Sharav told me, beginning around 1990, clinical trials became the profit center for the medical community. The insurance industry and HMOs were squeezing doctors so that it became hard to make big money practicing medicine. The most ambitious doctors left patient care and gravitated toward clinical trials. 
Everybody involved was making money except the subjects of the human experiments. At the center of everything was NIH and NIAID. While people were not paying attention, the agency quietly became the partner of the industry. Pharma's ethics quickly pervaded and corrupted NIAID's culture. The agency routinely overlooked and often sanctioned and engaged in routine manipulation of science to prove efficacy of dangerous and ineffective drugs. Callous disregard towards suffering and deaths among clinical trial volunteers became a feature of NIAID's modus operandi. According to the AP investigation, NIH scientists who violate ethical and legal requirements and use underhanded recruitment tactics pose a very real and present threat to public safety. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of patients in NIH experiments made decisions to participate in experiments that often carry risks without full knowledge about the researchers' financial interests. In 2004, investigative journalist Liam Sheff chronicled Dr. Fauci's secretive experiments on hundreds of HIV-positive foster children at Incarnation Children's Center, ICC, in New York City, and numerous sister facilities in New York and six other states between 1988 and 2002. Those experiments were the core of Dr. Fauci's career-defining effort to develop a second generation of profitable AIDS drugs as an encore to AZT. Chef described how Dr. Fauci's NIAID and his big pharma partners turned black and Hispanic foster kids into lab rats, subjecting them to torture and abuse in a grim parade of unsupervised drug and vaccine studies. This former convent houses a revolving stable of children who've been removed from their own homes by the Agency for Child Services, ACS. These children are black, Hispanic, and poor. Many of their mothers had a history of drug abuse and have died. Once taken into ICC, the children become subjects of drug trials sponsored by Dr. Anthony Fauci's NIAID, NICHD, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. In conjunction with some of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, Genentech, Chiron Biocene, and others. NIAID's pharma partners remunerated Incarnation Children's Center, ICC, for supplying children for the tests. As usual, Dr. Fauci had the Safety Oversight Board rigged with his loyal PIs, foremost of whom was Dr. Stephen Nicholas, a generously funded NIAID AIDS drug researcher. Stephen Nicholas was not only director of the ICC until 2002, he also simultaneously sat on the Pediatric Medical Advisory Panel, which was supposed to oversee the tests, which signifies a serious conflict of interest, criticizes Vera Sharov, president of the Alliance for Human Research Protection, AHRP, a medical industry watchdog organization. Chef continued, the drugs being given to the children are toxic. They're known to cause genetic mutation, organ failure, bone marrow death, bodily deformations, brain damage, and fatal skin disorders. 
If the children refuse the drugs, they're held down and force-fed. If the children continue to resist, they're taken to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where a surgeon puts a plastic tube through their abdominal wall into their stomachs. From then on, the drugs are injected directly into their intestines. In 2003, two children, ages 6 and 12, had debilitating strokes due to drug toxicities. The six-year-old went blind. They both died shortly after. Another 14-year-old died recently. An eight-year-old boy had two plastic surgeries to remove large, fatty, drug-induced lumps from his neck. This isn't science fiction. This is AIDS research. Even the foster children who survived Fauci's experiments reported dire side effects, ranging from skin outbreaks and hives, nausea and vomiting, to sharp drops in immune response and fevers, all common adverse reactions associated with the drugs he was targeting for development. During one of his trials involving the drug Dapsone, at least 10 children died. A May 2005 Associated Press investigation reported that those children died from a variety of causes, including four from blood poisoning. Researchers complained they were unable to determine a safe, useful dosage. Their guessing game cost those children their lives. An unexpected finding in our study, the researchers pitilessly observed, was that overall mortality while receiving the study drug was significantly higher in the daily Dapsone group. NIAID researchers shrugged off the deaths as a mystery. This finding remains unexplained. Vera Sharov spent years investigating Dr. Fauci's torture chambers as part of her lifelong mission to end cruel medical experimentation on children. Sharov told me Fauci just brushed all those dead babies under the rug. They were collateral damage in his career ambitions. They were throwaway children. Sharov said that at least 80 children died in Dr. Fauci's Manhattan concentration camp and accused NIAID and its partners of disposing of children's remains in mass graves. BBC's heartbreaking 2004 documentary, Guinea Pig Kids, chronicles the savage barbarity of Dr. Fauci's science projects from the perspective of the affected children. That year, BBC hired investigative reporter Celia Farber to conduct field research for the film, which exposes the dark underside of Big Pharma's stampede to develop lucrative new AIDS remedies. I found the mass grave at Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York, she told me. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was a very large pit with astroturf thrown over it, which you could actually lift up. Under it, one could see dozens of plain wooden coffins, haphazardly stacked. There may have been one hundred of them. I learned that there was more than one child's body in each. Around the pit was a semicircle of several large tombstones on which upward of one thousand children's names had been engraved. I wrote down every name. I'm still wondering who the rest of those kids were. As far as I know, Nobody has ever asked Dr. Fauci that haunting question. I remember the teddy bears and hearts in piles around the pit, 
and I recall the flies buzzing around. The job of recording all those names took all day. NIAID, New York, and all the hospital PIs were stonewalling us. We couldn't get any accurate estimate of the number of children who died in the NIAID experiments or who they were. I went to check the gravestone names against death certificates at the NYC Department of Health, which you could still do at that time. BBC wanted to match these coffins to the names of children who were known to have been at ICC. It was a very slow Byzantine project, with tremendous institutional resistance, but we did turn up a few names. We learned the story of a father who had come out of prison looking for his son. He was told his son had died at ICC of AIDS, and there were no medical records, as they'd all been lost in a fire. He was devastated. This story ran in the New York Post, believe it or not, but one after the other, Every media outlet that touched this story got cold feet. Even then, the medical cartel had this power to kill this kind of story. Dr. Fauci has built his career on that attitude. Nobody even asks him a follow-up question. NIAID's narrative at that time was that these children were among the doomed as they had AIDS, so supposedly they were all going to die anyway. When people died in large numbers, Gruesome deaths, NIAID's medical researchers called it lessons learned. Two years later, Farber would follow the trail of child casualties left by Dr. Fauci's AIDS branch, DAIDS, in Uganda, exposing the pattern of abusing African mothers and children. After the BBC documentary aired, AP reporter John Solomon made his own efforts to calculate the number of children who died in Dr. Fauci's AIDS drug experiments. Solomon's May 2005 AP investigation revealed that at least 465 New York City foster children were subjects in NIAID's trials and that Dr. Fauci's agency provided fewer than one-third or 142 of those children with an advocate, the minimum legally mandated protection. A March 2004 letter from Vera Sharav to Dr. David Horowitz, director of FDA's Office of Compliance, charged Dr. Fauci's HIV drug trials with numerous violations of federal law, including NIAID's failure to protect the rights and safety of foster children particularly during the perilous Phase I stages in which drug companies determine toxicity effects by exploring maximum tolerance levels. Sharav accused Dr. Fauci's team of illegally failing to provide state wards and orphans with independent guardians to represent their interests and protect their rights during brutal, dangerous, and often agonizingly painful experiments. The 2004 FDA investigation of Dr. Fauci's AIDS Research Division urged the head of NIH to insist on better management from NIAID. The overall management of this division requires careful review, the report said. A May 2005 congressional hearing also concluded that NIAID's experiments had violated federal statutes. In testimony before Congress, NIAID and its local partner, 
New York City's Administration for Children's Services, ACS, sought to justify the unethical research practices by claiming they were providing first-class, cutting-edge treatments to HIV-infected children who could otherwise not afford expensive medicines. However, AHRP's investigation revealed that many of the children NIAID subjected to Dr. Fauci's experiments were perfectly healthy and may not even have been HIV-infected. Those investigations focused on 36 of the trials. For obvious reasons, clinical trials virtually always occur in hospital settings with trained medical personnel, doctors and nurses in attendance. However, ICC was a non-medical facility. The decision to allow experiments with highly toxic drugs at an orphanage devoid of medical personnel was itself a stunning act of malpractice. Subsequent events suggest that the decision was deliberate, calculated to avoid scientific and ethical objections that might have put pharma PIs at odds with trained medical professionals. Publicly, NIAID pretended it would permit pharmaceutical companies to conduct their dangerous dose-tolerance experiments only on children who had terminal AIDS and were therefore likely to die anyhow. However, AHRP found that NIAID was quietly allowing its pharma partners to experiment not only on children with laboratory-confirmed HIV infection, but also those presumed to be infected. In other words, NIAID required no proof that these children actually had HIV. AHRP accused NIAID of exposing children who might never have developed AIDS to lethal risks and the horrific adverse effects of highly toxic drugs for purposes that were not therapeutic, but purely experimental. On March 8, 2004, NIH rejected a Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, request for the adverse event reports from NIAID's trials conducted at ICC, citing FOIA's trade secrets and privacy exemptions. AHRP then filed a complaint on March 10th with the FDA and the Office of Human Research Protections, OHRP, charging that NIAID was depriving foster children of legally mandated federal protections against research risks. Two subsequent investigations validated AHRP's complaint. John Solomon's AP investigation finally brought Dr. Fauci's experiments to national prominence. AP identified at least 48 AIDS experiments NIAID conducted on foster children in seven states, mostly in violation of the federal requirement that NIAID provide those children an advocate. In addition to the Dapsone trial that killed at least 10 children, NIAID sponsored another study, testing a combination of adult antiretroviral drugs. AP reported that of the 52 children in the trial, there were 26 moderate to severe reactions, nearly all in infants. The side effects included rash, fever, and dangerous drops in infection-fighting white blood cells. Casualties in the HIV Vaccine Enterprise 
From the outset, Dr. Fauci's experiments served his vain obsession to develop an HIV vaccine. Despite these expenditures of tens of billions of dollars, he has failed for 40 years to ever develop an HIV vaccine that was safe or effective for human use. Medical records that NIAID ultimately and reluctantly released proved that Dr. Fauci's PIs were testing his dangerous vaccines on children from one month to 18 years old. AP writer John Solomon confirmed that despite contrary requirements in official NIAID protocols, NIAID was knowingly allowing its pharma partners to violate NIAID's written study protocols by conducting these experiments on children with and without proof of HIV infection. For example, published reports acknowledge that NIAID, Genentech, and Microgenesis co-sponsored a vaccine trial codenamed ACTG number 218. The ACTG number 218 protocol states patients must have documented asymptomatic HIV infection, and the expected total enrollment was 72. However, an internal report acknowledges that NIAID was allowing the companies to openly violate those requirements. 125 immunized children proved to be HIV uninfected. Another report stated a total of 126 children were not infected. NIAID's final analysis acknowledged that ACTG number 218 showed no clinical benefit to vaccine recipients. Another HIV Phase I vaccine trial, ACTG number 230, tested two experimental vaccines, one by Genentech, another by Chiron Biocene. This time, the protocol openly declared accepts healthy volunteers. As Solomon discovered, the volunteer subjects of that unethical experiment were newborns aged three days or less. NIAID randomized these infants to one of three doses of either experimental HIV vaccine or placebo. These reports validate AHRP's concerns that Dr. Fauci experimented on infants and children who were never at risk of AIDS and that he exposed them to deadly risks and agonizing discomforts in a speculative drug and vaccine exercise that offered absolutely no potential benefit for them. Dr. Fauci was certainly aware of the peril to which he was subjecting his gallant infant volunteers. Most of the drugs that his PIs tested on these children were previously approved for adults with AIDS and carried black box warnings of potentially lethal side effects. Aldeslucan, Depsone, Didanosine, Lamivudine, Navirapin, Ritonavir, Stavudine, and Zidovudine. Finally, even in cases when the children were genuinely ill, Dr. Fauci's pretense that his experiments were compassionate gestures to impoverished orphans was always a sham. NIAID's claim that their experiments were the only opportunity for those children to receive life-saving drugs was a canard from the outset. 
New York state law requires that physicians provide life-saving treatment to wards of the state if need be to provide treatments off-label. Furthermore, drug companies do not primarily design clinical trials to benefit the individual subjects. Their purpose is to gain safety and efficacy information that may prove helpful for subsequent patients and be profitable for their bottom line. Finally, not all subjects get the most promising drug in a trial. Some get placebos. Liam Sheff's January 2004 article, The House That AIDS Built, ignited an outraged Internet controversy, prompting the New York Press to publish a follow-up article by Sheff, Inside Incarnation. Sheff's detailed descriptions are worth reading, if only to understand the sacrifices that Dr. Fauci demanded from his venturesome volunteer babies for the greater good. Chef's chronicle suggests that Dr. Fauci and his PIs purposefully took advantage of Incarnation Children's Center's status as a non-medical facility. The PIs had free reign to engage in conduct that experienced professional nurses and doctors would have flagged as unethical and illegal. When children declined to take the toxic drugs, NIAID and its pharma partners arranged to surgically implant feeding tubes in their bellies to force obedience. Chef wrote, When Mimi started at ICC, the tubes were used infrequently. But when the kids got older, a lot of them started to refuse the medication, she recalled. Then they started coming in with the tubes more and more. Kids who refused too much or threw up too much, they'd get a tube. First it was through the nose, but then it was more and more through the stomach. You'd see a certain child refusing over and over, and one day they'd come back from the hospital from surgery, and they had a tube coming right out of their stomach. If you asked why, the doctor said it was for compliance. The regimen. Got to keep up the regimen, said Mimi. Those were the rules. Mimi describes how children suffered and how some died. One girl, a six-year-old, Cheyenne, she came in for adherence. She was the most delicate little flower, beautiful, polite, full of life. Her family never gave her meds, so Administration for Children's Services brought her into ICC. She came in and started the meds, and it was three months, maybe three months, and she had a stroke. She could not see. She was this normal girl, singing, jumping, playing. Then poof, stroked out, blind. We were freaked out. Then, in a few months, she was gone, dead. Between 1985 and 2005, NIAID and its pharma partners conscripted at least 532 infants and children from foster care in New York City as human subjects of clinical trials testing NIAID's experimental AIDS drugs and vaccines. ICC and the medical research centers that conducted the trials received substantial payments for hosting the experiments from both the National Institutes of Health and the manufacturers of the drugs. Among those companies were Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Microgenesis, Biocene, Glaxo, Welcome, and Pfizer. The subsequent independent investigations by the Associated Press, 
by the Federal Office of Human Research Protections and by the Vera Institute of Justice confirmed that most children did not have the protection of an independent advocate to give or refuse consent to experimental interventions and that they were almost all children of color, predominantly African-American, 64%, and Latino, 30%, suggesting discriminatory policies consistent with HHS's long history of medical racism. The Vera Institute, relying mostly on city ACS documents, confirmed 80 deaths and that many other children suffered serious harm. The child welfare files contained information indicating that some children experienced serious toxicities or side effects from trial medications such as reduced liver function or severe anemia. These toxicities were consistent with toxicities described in published articles about the trials. Fauci poo-pooed all those deaths, recalled Vera Shirov. The very best thing you could say about Dr. Fauci is that he failed to get involved when problems emerged on his management watch. The Associated Press reported that the scope of Dr. Fauci's experiments was much wider, extending beyond New York to at least seven states, among them Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, New York, North Carolina, Colorado, and Texas. AP reported that more than four dozen different studies were involved. The foster children ranged from infants to late teens. Investigation by the Federal Office of Human Research Protections, OHRP. In 2006, following journalist John Solomon's AP report, the OHRP launched its own investigation of the problems at NIAID. That study found NIAID's toxic culture had normalized chronic violations of product safety science. OHRP confirmed the allegations by the AHRP that drug companies, their PIs, and government officers failed to obtain proper consent from an independent advocate, failed to ensure equitable selection, and failed to ensure safeguards for the foster children who are likely to be vulnerable to coercion or undue influence. Vera Institute Report In 2005, the NYC Administration of Child Services, ACS, commissioned a four-year investigation by the Vera Institute at a cost of $3 million. The Vera Institute issued its annual report in 2009. The report investigated a 20-year period during which Dr. Fauci's NIAID experiments endangered predominantly African-American and Latino children in foster care by subjecting them to toxic Phase I and Phase II AIDS drug and vaccine experiments, mostly without parental consent and without the protection of an independent advocate. Among the findings in the Vera study, 80 of the 532 children who participated in clinical trials or observational studies died while in foster care. 25 of the children died while enrolled in a medication trial. 64 children participated in 30 medication trials that were not reviewed by a special medical advisory panel as the city's policy required 
and 21 children participated in trials that the panel had reviewed but had not recommended. In both cases, 13 of the enrollments occurred before the children were placed in foster care. Vera Institute's director, Timothy Ross, complained that the report only contained a portion of NIAID's atrocities because NIAID allowed the hospitals to deny the institute staff access to the children's primary records or the clinical trial records, which the culprits kept sealed under the pretense of confidentiality. These are the hospitals that conduct the lucrative clinical trials for NIAID and pharma that Dr. Fauci's PIs supervise. NIAID basically funnels tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars to these hospitals specifically to give Dr. Fauci unquestioned power over the policies. Thanks to NIAID's stonewalling, the Vera Institute had to rely on secondary child welfare files and pediatric AIDS unit, PAU, records, both of which are notoriously incomplete. The Vera Institute did not even have access to minutes from research review boards, IRBs, for the medical centers that conducted the trials. 2008 NIH Report Even after this scandal exploded, there was no evidence that Dr. Fauci made any effort to reform NIAID. Six years later, two biomedical ethicists inside the NIH concluded in a January 2008 article in Pediatrics that the agency still did not have adequate protections for vulnerable foster children. Enrolling wards of the state in research raises two major concerns, the possibility that an unfair share of the burdens of research might fall on wards, and the need to ensure interests of individual wards are accounted for. Having special protections only for some categories is misguided. Furthermore, some of the existing protections ought to be strengthened. During the decades since Dr. Fauci took over NIAID, he has sanctioned drug companies to experiment on at least 14,000 children, many of them black and Hispanic orphans, living in foster homes. He permitted these companies to operate without oversight or accountability. Under Dr. Fauci's laissez-faire rubric, these companies systematically abused and occasionally killed children. Dr. Fauci presided over these atrocities, collaborating with pharmaceutical company researchers and winking at their loose definitions of informed consent and volunteer. Instead of looking out for the best interests of children, Dr. Fauci gave outlaw drug makers free reign to torture vulnerable children behind closed doors with neither parental permission nor requisite oversight from child welfare authorities. In 1965, my father kicked down the door of the Willowbrook State School on Staten Island, where pharmaceutical companies were conducting cruel and often deadly vaccine experiments on incarcerated children. Robert Kennedy declared Willowbrook a snake pit and promoted legislation to close the institution and end the exploitation of children. Fifty-five years later, national media and Democratic Party sachems have beatified a man who presided over similar atrocities, 
somehow elevating him to a kind of secular sainthood. What dark flaw in Anthony Fauci's character allowed him to oversee, and then to cover up, the atrocities at Incarnation Children's Center? At very best, there must be some arrogance or imperiousness that enables Dr. Fauci to rationalize the suffering and deaths of children as acceptable collateral damage in what he sees as his noble search for new public health innovations. At worst, he is a sociopath who has pushed science into the realm of sadism. Recent disclosures support the latter interpretation. Freedom of Information documents obtained in January 2021 by the White Coat Waste Project show that Dr. Fauci approved a $424,000 NIAID grant in 2020 for experiments in which dogs were bitten to death by flies. The insects carried a disease-carrying parasite that can affect humans. The researchers strapped capsules containing infected flies to the bare skin of 28 healthy beagle puppies and kept them in agonizing suffering for 196 days before euthanizing them. NIAID acknowledged it subjected other animals, including mice, Mongolian gerbils, and rhesus monkeys to similar experiments. That same year, Dr. Fauci's agency gave $400,000 to University of Pittsburgh scientists to graft the scalps of aborted fetuses onto living mice and rats. NIAID sought to develop rat and mouse models using full-thickness fetal skin to provide a platform for studying human skin infections. Dr. Fauci's sidekick and putative boss, Francis Collins, who casts himself as a pious Catholic, kicked in a $1.1 million sweetener from NIH for this malignant project. Of all the desperate public health needs in America, of all the pain that a well-spent $2 million might alleviate, Tony Fauci and his government confederates deemed these demented and inhumane experiments the most worthwhile expenditures of America's taxpayer dollars. These disclosures beg many other questions. From what moral wilderness did the monsters who devised and condoned these experiments descend upon our idealistic country? How have they lately come to exercise such tyrannical power over our citizens? What sort of nation are we if we allow them to continue? Most trenchantly, does it not make sense that the malevolent minds, the elastic ethics, the appalling judgment, the arrogance, and savagery that sanctioned the barbaric brutalization of children at the incarceration convent house, and the torture of animals for industry profit, could also concoct a moral justification for suppressing life-saving remedies and prolonging a deadly epidemic? Could these same dark alchemists justify a strategy of prioritizing their 48 billion-dollar vaccine project ahead of public health and human life? Did similar hubris, that deadly human impulse to play God, pave the lethal path to Wuhan and fuel the reckless decision to hack the codes of creation and fabricate diabolical new forms of life, pandemic superbugs, in a ramshackle laboratory with scientists linked to the Chinese military? On my birthday in January 1961, 
three days before I watched my uncle John F. Kennedy take his oath as President of the United States. Outgoing President Dwight Eisenhower, in his farewell address, warned our country about the emergence of a military-industrial complex that would obliterate our democracy. In that speech, Eisenhower made an equally urgent, although less celebrated, warning against the emergence of a federal bureaucracy which he believed posed an equally dire threat to America's Constitution and her values. He said, In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. We must be alert to the danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Eisenhower demanded that we guard against this insipid brand of tyranny by entrusting our government to responsible officials ever vigilant against the deadly gravities of technocratic power and industry money that would pull our nation away from democracy and humanity and into diabolical dystopian savagery. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. During his half-century as a government official, Dr. Fauci has utterly failed in this charge. As we shall see, he has used his control of billions of dollars to manipulate and control scientific research to promote his own and NIAID's institutional self-interest and private profits for his pharma partners to the detriment of America's values, her health, and her liberties. Of late, he has played a central role in undermining public health and subverting democracy and constitutional governance around the globe and in transitioning our civil governance toward medical totalitarianism, just as President Eisenhower warned. Dr. Fauci's COVID-19 response has steadily deconstructed our democracy and elevated the powers of a tyrannical medical technocracy. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments, endnotes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.